Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Farmerama. This month, we're full to the brim with small-scale farming heroines. We start with a super-inspiring farmer in New York State who shares her top three tips for setting up a small-scale farm. We speak to female farmers on either side of the Atlantic about life and death and what it means to raise and kill animals. And we end the show looking at the power of photography to share the stories of small-scale farmers around the world. We begin at Soulfire Farm in New York State, where farmer, writer and activist Leah Penniman has spent the last 20 years building a farm and a revolution. Leah has just written a book, Farming While Black, which is both a manifesto and a manual. It includes recipes, wisdom from diasporic African farmers, and practical techniques for setting up a small-scale farm. Here are Leah's top three tips for farmers who are just starting out. One really important tip, while it might not seem eminently practical, is to believe and act as if the land is alive and is a sovereign being. One of the reasons I think things go well for us at Soulfire Farm is because we ask permission of the land to do what we do. And with her blessing, things fall into place. There's harmony. There's not as many pest insects or uh, noxious plants. The weather seems to work out a little better for us than it does, you know, for everyone else. And, you know, while that might not be part of your belief system, I do encourage you to lean into the idea of the land being a sovereign being with its own will, because that will engender a certain kind of respect and deference. Uh, for example, before we harvest the maize from the milpa, we ask for permission. We say a prayer of thanks. Before we cut down a bunch of trees, we make an offering to the tree and thank the tree for their lives. And I think this brings about a kind of harmony in the project that is otherwise absent when we only view the world as material. A second tip would be to really encourage young farmers to consider no and low till methods. One of the reasons for that is that the soil is a powerful reservoir of carbon and tillage releases that carbon into the atmosphere and is an important driver of climate change. And we certainly don't want to contribute to damaging the atmosphere and undermining our own life systems by pumping all this carbon into the air. The other reason is that when you engage low and no-till practices over time, it actually is less work and you get a higher quality product. So whether you're using uh, sheet mulching methods with cardboard and uh, straw or leaves, or whether you use plastic culture in order to uh, subdue the weeds over the years, or occasional deep zone tillage, all of these methods over time will deplete your weed seed bank and build up your soil structure, so you're going to get a lot more sustainable and higher quality product. Um, so encouraging folks not to till. The third tip that I have is to integrate livestock into your whole farm system. Uh, for millennia, that's what our ancestors have been doing with great success. Um, animals are incredible. They can graze the lands um, in a way that deposits manure for future fertility for your crops. Uh, they eat pest insects. They provide a sustainable source of protein, especially in northern climates. And when you're using smaller livestock like uh, chickens and other fowl or pigs, 
they have a much smaller environmental footprint than ruminants like sheep and, and cows. And for many people, that type of protein is very important to the diet and to cultural heritage. And so it's been essential for us to provide some amount of meat and animal products uh, for our community, though we always encourage people to limit the overall consumption of those to think about meat and animal products as a spice or a special occasion food and have a predominantly plant-based diet. If you want to hear more of Leah's story, check out the special episode we created with her, brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing. You can find it on any podcasting platform, and, as always, on our SoundCloud feed. It'll be released in the next week. As part of her commitment to sharing both Afro-Indigenous wisdom and her own learning with other people of colour, Leah has created the Black Latinx Farmers Immersion Programme. Leah is a vegetarian, but she still keeps and kills animals on the farm. And this duty of stewarding life is part of what she shares with others. Well, we do time our chicken harvest to the midpoint of our Black Latinx Farmers Immersion Program so that folks who are visiting and learning can choose to opt into that experience. So certainly not everyone chooses to, but this year it was between two thirds and three quarters of people in every session who wanted to learn how to do this skill. For some folks, it's a deeply emotional experience because they've never been so close to the boundary of life and death and certainly never participated. Uh, we hold it in as sacred a manner as possible. So we offer prayers from the Haitian Vodou tradition, prayers from the Hebrew tradition, um, special herbs to help light the path to the ancestors. Uh, we take our time and leave space for folks to do emotional processing around what's happening. Um, afterwards, there's a spiritual bath uh, which is a tradition anytime we're near the threshold of life and death to do a bath with sacred herbs and water and incantations to mark the end of that time period. Uh, but I will say also, you know, for some folks, they find their calling in this. They really want to be livestock farmers. They're ready for the sacred duty that comes with stewarding life in this way. Uh, so we've had a few, you know, a few folks leave the program and say, you know, this is, this is the way that I want to serve my community and feed my community. The act of caring for and killing animals is something that's often talked around, but not faced head on. For many of us, it's still taboo. So when we came across the at Piglet to Plate Instagram account, we were excited to see Millie Diamond sharing the day-to-day -day realities of her experience of rearing, killing, and eating her own pigs. Here, Millie shares a few of her thoughts and posts from this journey. Hi, my name is Millie Diamond and I'm the founder of Piglet to Plate, which is a platform that looks to reconnect people with food and farming. I don't come from a farming background and spent six years in London in marketing uh, before deciding that I needed to do something different. Being fired probably helped with the drastic life change. I returned to North Wales where I grew up and spent 2017 raising three pigs and documenting the entire experience. So I'm currently sitting in the orchard where I raise my pigs and it still feels quite odd to be coming in here and not seeing them running over desperately in hope of food. When I set out on this journey I openly pledged that if I couldn't go through the entire process and take my pigs to slaughter I would stop eating meat forever. 
I also realised along the way that if I was going to eat any meat at all, it would surely be better to eat the meat that I'd produced. Before going any further, I'm going to read out some posts from Instagram around the time my pigs were slaughtered. 16th of December 2017. I'm starting to think the orchard might feel a bit empty after Christmas. I'm really not looking forward to the day these little piggies go to market, but I'm definitely looking forward to the end result. To have something that we've cared for, fed and nurtured, which in turn will feed and nurture us, makes me very excited. To know all the work that has gone into keeping them happy and healthy will now contribute to us being happy and healthy. Knowing what we're eating, how it has lived, where it has lived, and just importantly, how it has died. We never like thinking about death, and it's hard to accept that something's died for our benefit. This is the part of this journey I've been most intrigued by. Will it taste better to me knowing all the energy and love that I've poured into these amazing animals, or will I struggle to eat them? My gut is telling me that they'll taste great. Let's hope so. There's going to be a lot of meat. I think we have to remember that in order to eat meat, animals have to die. And I think that's something that a lot of people prefer not to think about. And as with any kind of death, it can be such a taboo topic. But shrouding the whole process in mystery doesn't really help our understanding of it. Although I've been to an abattoir before, I spent a month in Sweden working on an organic pig farm um, and took some pigs there to an abattoir in Uppsala. Um, it was very different taking my own pigs that I'd spent the year raising. 2nd of January 2018. There's just under a week left with these pigs, which is terrifying, exciting, daunting, sad and a strange way to begin the new year. I've got extremely mixed feelings about taking them to the abattoir next week. I'm worrying about them being stressed and about getting them into the trailer. I'm looking forward to feeling relieved that it's done and out of the way, but I'm nervous that we're all going to feel a bit empty and sad. And then I'm excited to know that we've poured love, care and attention into these animals to ensure that they've had the best lives possible and can provide us with nourishing food. I knew exactly what had gone into my pigs. They lived the most wonderful life in such a great little orchard full of apple and pear trees. And I spent so many backbreaking days shoveling barrel loads of acorns from the surrounding fields and lanes to keep them happy with extra treats. 7th of January 2018. The three not so little pigs are now snuffling around as the sun goes down on a beautiful crisp wintry Sunday. I'm sure tomorrow is going to be one of my least happy days on this journey, but this is what it's all been leading to. Without this part, the rest is obsolete. Without all the learning and fun and joy from these tiny piglets that have grown into hilarious pigs, I would not be experiencing all the feelings that I'm feeling right now. And these are the right feelings to have. It shouldn't be easy. I think I'd rather feel this emotional, this much care and love every single time, than become too hardened to the process and forget that these are living, sentient beings because it's all too easy to forget that when you sit down to eat a piece of meat. There were so many people that told me not to get too attached. Friends, farmers, family. I don't think people thought that I'd ever end up taking them to slaughter. I used to lie with them in the field, um, tickling their tummies, kind of spooning them, and they absolutely loved it. And if you were giving one too much attention, another one would come snuffling over and try and push the other one out of the way. Why shouldn't they receive tummy tickles and why shouldn't you enjoy your time with them while they're here? 9th January 2018 
Today hasn't been a great day. I've spent most of it wandering around, knowing that I need to get down on paper everything I'm feeling while it's raw so I don't forget it all, but also wanting to just sit on everything a bit more. I'm so proud of my family who have all played such an important part in this journey and all pulled together yesterday to get the job done. I still feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and sadness. I'm just so grateful to everyone who has sent messages of support, love and kindness and that have made the last week a little bit easier. I cried for about a week after taking them um, and I'd made a bolognese the morning before we took them so we had dinner waiting for us when we got back but I couldn't even face eating it. I just had a very large whiskey and went to bed. Um, I remember coming out into this orchard the next morning and feeling just such emptiness and such guilt and the sense of relief that I was hoping for wasn't really there. Um, but that kind of all changed when I went to butcher them. Um, it was so exciting. I knew I'd be taking some pork chops to have for dinner and couldn't wait to taste the meat. I think we're so used to being able to buy any food we want whenever we want but waiting for this meat for nearly a year was some serious delayed gratification. March 26, 2018. I can't get over the colour, flavour and quality of this cured pig's cheek. It's going to be making an appearance this weekend in a few tasty dishes and I can't wait. I always try and explain how feeding ourselves and nature are so inextricably linked, whether in the city or the countryside, whether we're buying our produce from supermarkets or small producers and farmers markets. I'm hastily ploughing through Michael Pollan's book, Cooked, and he sums this up far better than I ever could. Cooking, of whatever kind, every day or extreme, situates us in a very special place, facing the natural world on one side and the social world on the other. The cook stands squarely between nature and culture, conducting a process of translation and negotiation. Both nature and culture are transformed by the work, and in the process, so is the cook. There is nothing more apt than this for me, but sometimes we forget this transformation as we cook for ourselves, day in, day out. Never have I thought more about what I'm cooking, putting into my body and putting into the bodies of others to nourish them than I have since getting our pigs. To see the full translation from a piglet to the plate puts you right there in the hot seat and never fails to remind you that you're in the midst of a magical process. I try very hard not to advocate any one particular diet. I prefer to show how animals can be raised and slaughtered compassionately and how all food produced with care by passionate people can be so much better for us and the world around us. But I think there's still such a lack of understanding when it comes to farming and all the hard work that farmers put in. And I hope that by being as open as possible on this journey, I've helped others understand what it takes to get food on our tables. I think as farmers, we have to keep shouting about what we're doing and showing the world all the positive stories. It's too easy for farming to get bad press when actually there are so many things that we should be celebrating. Thanks to Rebel Kitchen for supporting this episode. Rebel Kitchen are all about redefining health, but they have a different kind of health message, and we think that's great. It's a health message that doesn't separate the individual from the whole, and that's based on actions instead of preaching, because, as they point out, it's all connected.
few weeks ago, we marched with the Landworkers Alliance and many others from the UK Parliament at Westminster to the We Feed the World exhibition on London's South Bank. The slogan of the march was Better Food, More Farmers, and it made this demand just as the new Agriculture Bill was being debated in Parliament. For the We Feed the World project, the Gaia Foundation brought together an international team of world-renowned photographers with farming communities, farmers' movements and civil society groups to create a unique and far-reaching exhibition. Theo Soa of the African Women's Development Fund spoke about the power of the exhibition. And just a heads up that this was recorded at a live event, so apologies in advance for the sound quality. So I'm going to be very, very quick, but I wanted to thank everyone who's been a part of this project. Because at the African Women's Development Fund, our whole job is actually supporting women's rights activists across Africa. In our work, what we see is how the narrative, the stories around who African women are, are and what they do have been completely distorted. The amazing thing about a photo exhibition like this is that it tells stories in a language that everyone understands. You don't have to be speaking English or Portuguese or French to understand the importance of the work that all of the people in these photographs are doing. But because of this world we live in, where television cameras can go out and give you sweeping pictures of farms that are hundreds of acres big, farms that are absolutely huge, that can show you pictures that look breathtaking, that actually end up feeding people's sense that mass industrial farming is what feeds the world. We see that on TV. It impacts on how people think. It impacts on how people buy. It impacts on how people eat. But when you're actually in the countries where food is being produced, you see that it's not the mass farming that makes the difference. It's the thousands and thousands and thousands of smallholder farmers who are producing food and have the generations in producing food that truly feeds the world. What you also don't see behind those pictures of beautiful fields of corn and wheat and in massive farms is the pain and the violations that very often go behind them. When you have women thrown off of land that they've worked on for generations because someone with money, and very often your pension money, is going in and buying on a mass scale and actually destroying the land and destroying the work that women and men have done for generations. You realize how dangerous myths and false stories can become. What this exhibition does is to begin to change those myths. It begins to show people that actually it's not mass production that counts. It's people who have passion for the land, people who understand. And I really hope that as all of you go away today, whether you are in the private sector, whether you're in the food industry, whether you're in the rights sector, that you go away and you spread the story. 
you spread the story about how smallholder farmers feed the world. And to finish, we had to share some of Vandana Shiva's reflections on what the exhibition means for all of us. There's a recent book of mine called Who Really Feeds the World? And it, in very simple terms, addresses the three big myths that large-scale farming feeds the world, that chemicals and GMOs feed the world, and corporations feed the world. Large-scale industrial farms don't produce food. They produce commodities. We used to eat 10,000 species of plants. About 10 commodities account for most cultivation, and four GMO crops account for the largest expansion. In our ancient texts, it says everything is food. And the more I've studied, the more I realize that the ecological web of life is really a food web, whether it be the soil food web or it be the food web that controls pests and insects from becoming pests, you know. I don't think pests and weeds are part of good agriculture. They're a symptom of bad agriculture, created by monocultures. The fact that it's small farmers who feed us is because they are the only source of real food. Not only do they produce 70% of what people eat. The reason this figure came out so recently from the FAO was this measured what people eat. Before that, what was measured, what was put on container ships and traded. What's put on container ships is commodities. And commodities are not just ruining the small farmer. They're ruining the land, they're ruining the climate, and they're not bringing us nourishment, which food should be. The book I mentioned, Who Really Feeds the World, showed that 75% of all ecological destruction, whether it's of soil or water, 50% of climate change, 75% destruction of most biodiversity, 93% devastation of uh, biodiversity of cultivated plants is all because of industrial farming. And 75% of the chronic diseases of our time come from industrial farming. Between these two catastrophes, we have about 100 years for our species to live on a planet that allows us to live, that functions like Gaia. I just organized a biodiversity congress in Dehradun and the chief minister of our state said it so honestly. He said, biodiversity doesn't need us. We need biodiversity. The earth doesn't need us. We need this living planet. Of course, the desperate billionaires, that 1%, now think they'll move to Mars. <laughs> yeah. No, they're all saying the earth is no good. Well, the earth is the only place that's a living planet. This is where all these amazing small farmers have created so many different kinds of crops. Food is the continuum of our life and our freedom. Whether it's the soil microbes that give us fertile soils, or the 100 trillion microbes in our gut microbiome, there's only one place where that nourishment will come. The care, love, passion of our small farmers. It is not a luxury. 
for us to defend them. It's an imperative. It's a health imperative, it's an ecological imperative, it's a political imperative of freedom from the toxic cartel. It's a spiritual imperative. And food is not a product, it is life itself. Thank you. This month's show was made by Abby Rose, me, Katie Ravel, and Joe Barrett. Additional reporting came from Millie Diamond, and we had editing support this month from Louis Hudson. Community support is provided by Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Olden, and our theme music is by Owen Barrett.